Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 10 of the podcast, and we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the Rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward finishes up chapter 3, focusing on verses 22 through 36. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, and we pray you are blessed by what you hear each week. If you're just starting to listen to this podcast, we invite you to check out previous episodes to get caught up to speed with this study. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Before we uh, begin, let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we live in an age and a time where we have access to so much. We live in a nation where we have so much freedom. Help us to not take that freedom for granted. Help us to use the most of our time. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have decided to set aside time for you, Lord. And I pray, I know that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, everyone here is going to be enriched, spiritually convicted, and encouraged. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, well, last week, if you were here, you know that we were uh, looking at Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus and the important point that Jesus makes to Nicodemus that it's not so much the outward that God is concerned about, but he is first and foremost concerned about what's in the heart. There has to be an inner transformation that uh, the Jews can't just expect God's blessing by virtue of their being born a Jew, by virtue of being them, having them be a physical descendant of Abraham. And then we looked at the profound words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, again, Jesus is emphasizing why he came to this world to give us eternal life, uh, to pass, to give us the opportunity to pass out of judgment, out of condemnation, out of our sin into new life uh, through his grace and mercy. And so that is kind of where we left off. And now we're going to, if you would turn in your Bibles to John 3, now we're going to pick up as we hear the testimony of John the Baptist. And I believe this is pretty much the last we hear of John the Baptist in John's Gospel. John does not include his imprisonment and his questioning whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah. As I noted a couple weeks ago, uh, John the Baptist probably was, as he sat in the dungeon awaiting his fate, he was probably wondering, hey, wait a minute, things aren't going so good. I better double check to make sure Jesus is truly who he said he is. But uh, at the height of his ministry, John recognized Jesus for who he is, and John the Apostle includes his testimony as a way to affirm the identity of Christ and the authenticity of his mission. And this is significant too because John the apostle was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. So let's now look at verse 22 under the heading, uh, if you have the, the Pew Bible, it's John's last testimony. 
If you have your own Bible, it's John chapter 3, verse 22, John's Gospel. And we read that after these things, that is, after Jesus had his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anna near Salim, or Salem, because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had yet been thrown into prison. Now, it's interesting because here we have Jesus baptizing and John also baptizing. And John was strategic. He went to an area where there was a lot lot of water. To baptize means to be submerged, to be fully immersed. And that's the ideal. And the reason for that is because baptism represents the transforming work that God is doing to us, spirit, soul, and body. Our whole being is being transformed. It's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. I put 22 there. You can ask 22. It isn't pertaining to what Paul is saying. Where Paul says, Now may the Lord himself sanctify you entirely, spirit, soul, and body, at the coming of Jesus. And so God is in the work of transforming us completely. That's why we have the hope of the resurrection of the body. It isn't just my soul and spirit that's being transformed. It's my actual physical body that's going to be transformed. And so baptism represents death going under the water and new life. It represents a total transformation, spirit, soul, and body. The new life that we have, the new creature that we become. And so that is the ideal But lest we think that it's the amount of water that does the trick, it isn't the amount of water, it is the grace that is, and mercy that is received by faith, and so it isn't really the amount of water that's most important. So there is also the tradition of just pouring water over a person's head, because again, it's an outward invisible sign of what God is doing. But I do think there is... um, There is a powerful message when we go under the water. And certainly if you ever take a trip uh, to Israel and you have the opportunity to go under the water and baptize in the River Jordan, I would do it as a way of, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now when I was at the River Jordan, unfortunately the place that we were at, the water was only uh, ankle deep, so there was no way to be fully immersed. But we did uh, renew our baptismal vows, and we did have water sprinkled over over us. But uh, again, parts of the Jordan are going to be shallow, especially during different times of the year. And in this case, John was baptizing where there was a lot of water, but he was also doing it in a region. Uh, If we could have the next slide, please. Note Galilee is in the north where Jesus grew up. Samaria is just south of Galilee there. Um, But you'll see the uh, city Scythopolis. Do you see that? That's in the Decapolis. Decapolis or Decapolis, uh, right there. So just south, you see where it says Salim? Salim and Anan. That was probably where John was baptizing. And the reason why it would be strategic is in Decapolis, 
that was not under the control of uh, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who um, had John beheaded, and he was not in control of that region. So uh, for whatever reason, uh, it could have been, again, just because of the water, but it also, at that point, uh, this was at the end of John the Baptist's ministry, and Jesus' ministry was ascending. More people were coming to Jesus than to John, and we're going to see that that caused a little bit of a dilemma for John the Baptist's disciples. But before we do that, let's hit the next slide. Okay, we we talked about where do the Samaritans come, because we're going to be, after we uh, look at John the Baptist, we're going to be looking at the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And if you recall, after the kingdom of Israel was a unified kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon... And Solomon, after he died, the kingdom split in two. There was a conflict, a civil war in his family, and it split in two into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. And what the Assyrians did is they took a lot of the the, uh, Israelites out of that region. Some stayed, and then they basically colonized it, and you had a lot, an influx of people who were uh, not Israelite. And over the centuries, they mixed. And what developed was like a a pseudo-monotheistic religion that included the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and the Law of Moses, but also adopted a bunch of the polytheistic ideas and beliefs. And so it was kind of a mixed religion. And when the Jews, now the Jews then in the kingdom of Judah, they were overtaken by uh, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar about 140 years later in 586 B.C. And when those Jews were taken out to Babylon, if you recall, after Babylon was vanquished by Persia, the Persian uh, king Cyrus allowed them to go back to Judah, to Jerusalem. You see the star there with Jerusalem? and to rebuild the temple. And they had uh, approached the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with them. Even with that couple hundred years, there was just, and it just went from bad to worse. Uh, And the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews was about as intense as you can get it. In fact, when a war between the Samaritans and the Jews broke up, broke out under the reign of Claudius, the Roman emperor, who reigned after Jesus uh, was crucified. Roman soldiers were brought in to pacify the uh, war, and they crucified a lot of the people. But they, were, had to, they had to be sent in because it was so violent, it was so intense. Now let's look at the next map. So what developed was Samaria, the region of Samaria, which is smaller, and then the re- region of Judea. And you'll see, again, north is Galilee, which had a lot of Jews, uh, but wasn't the Jewish heartline. And then Decapolis was more of a Romanized Greek cities, Gentile cities. You see Decapolis there. And then the River Jordan, where you see where it says the Jordan River, up north towards Galilee would be a lot of John's ministry. And then down south near Jericho. Do you see Jericho? So that's where John the Baptist would be operating. Okay, next slide. Now, do you see where it says Galilee and then Perea? That was where Herod Antipas ruled. 
And then if you see where it says Decapolis, and then Sephopolis, and by the way, I misspelled that in your notes, I left out the O, but just so you know. Um, so you can see that region was not under Herod's control. But do you see all that purple? That is the prefecture of Judea. That would be under Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And it was part of the greater province of Syria. So again, this is just to kind of put everything in perspective. Now, if you see all that white, the white shows on the, on the top the mission of Jesus, where he operated much of his ministry. But remember, John talks about a lot of Jesus' ministry down in Judea and Jerusalem. And then do you see the middle part there? That's predominantly where John the Baptist uh, operated, north of the Dead Sea and south of uh, the Sea of Galilee. So again, that's just to give everyone a little bit of a historical and um, geographical uh, background context for what is happening. Okay, now let's continue. Verse 25, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptized, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent, been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, I'm sorry, friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Did you catch that? John is saying that he, that is Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. If there is a statement that should be applied to all of us, if there is a statement that helps us discern what is the truth and what isn't the truth, if there is a statement that helps us understand where religions and cults and philosophies go wrong, it is this statement. He must increase. God must increase in our lives. Jesus must increase in our lives if we're truly to experience His presence, His power, His love, His peace, His joy. We must continually decrease, and that is the toughest battle that all of us face. Because you might not be selfish. I mean, we all tend to be selfish, but you can develop a giving and a generous heart, but you can still be self-centered. And that war between self and God is the war we face every single day. And John the Baptist, who was the most popular prophet of his day, the one that everyone was listening to who really was serious about wanting to follow God, now sees more people going to Jesus. And his disciples are wondering, hey, is this right, John? And John not only acknowledges again who Christ is as the Messiah, or who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Christ, 
but he follows through. Remember, he said originally, I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs of his saddle, sandals. But he must increase, I must decrease. That should be a motto that we all have each and every day. And so if I'm going to discern and evaluate a religious leader, a religion, a philosophy, a cult, a way of life, all I need to do is ask them the question, who do you view Jesus as in your life? And if they give me anything short of that he is Almighty God, he is the all-powerful one, and I need to submit to him, then they're in error. The Muslims believe he's a great prophet, but they don't believe he is God in the flesh. They think that's a, an indignity to Allah, that Allah would come and walk among us. And yet we know that is the case when it comes to Jesus Christ. When someone lives their life, do they live their life as if Jesus is number one, or as if someone, something else, or themselves, number one? He must increase, we must decrease. So not only is that true on a a philosophical or theoretical level, but also personally, we have to see that in our lives. And John the Baptist gives us that wonderful, simple statement to affirm uh, what it's all about. Now we have an interesting series of verses 31 through 36, it looks like John the Baptist is continuing to talk. But you can tell from the language that the language reflects more of Jesus. It parallels 16 through 21, and in fact is probably John the Apostle's commentary. Affirmation of who Jesus is. And the reason for that is, again, the words don't seem to be John the Baptist's. And we need to remember that when the New Testament was originally written, when these Gospels were written and the epistles, they were in Greek and they did not have quotation marks. They did not have verse numbers. They did not have chapter numbers. It was all Greek words, all together. And so there is no indication that this is still... I mean, you can't can't say for sure, but... Let's look at what it says, and you can kind of tell that this seems to echo more of Christ's words and how John the Apostle sometimes communicates them. He who comes from above is above all. So what John is doing is giving us the justification for John the Baptist's statement, he must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Note the repetition. Second point, I mean the second way to say the same point. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. So two things here. Jesus is simply testifying what is true. Do you remember when he was brought before Pontius Pilate? We'll see that in John 18. Jesus says the reason why he came to earth was to testify to the truth. He's just telling us what it is. And so he is telling us about what is really true, but then something happens. No one receives his testimony. There's a choice. You're either going to believe it or you're not. You're going to accept it or you're going to reject it. He who has received his testimony has set his seal 
to this, that God is true. So for those who say yes to Jesus, we're saying we believe it, it's true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. This is awesome too, because this is kind of setting us up for Jesus' final teaching before he dies on Monday, Thursday, or the teaching was on, remember, the Last Supper? And he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, right now, John the Apostle is setting us up for that. Notice the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father sends the Son, and it is the Son who gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then we have this recurring theme that is given in the purpose of John. Remember, John said that these things, these signs, have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and, by, and the Son of God and that believing in His name, you'll have eternal life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, this is the only time in John's Gospel, but it's fascinating, where we see the word wrath of God. Now, you have God's wrath in other parts of the Scriptures. And God's wrath, that is a, that is a uh, phrase that the wrath of God says that God will pour out His judgment in a tangible way. It'll be a righteous judgment. It will be a punishment. And it flows for his, from His anger because of that, the sin and the wickedness that he sees. But before that, it says, he who believes in the Son, that is, he who accepts the Son, right? Trusts the Son, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now, this is great too, because, and again, this, this, this passage, there's so much, because we see this later where Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And so, the gospel is not about simply easy believing, just believing with your head, but we have to follow with action. And so that's why we have these words that if you don't obey the Son, if you don't listen to Him and believe Him and follow through, God's wrath remains on you. And that parallels what we heard earlier in John 3. Look here in verse 19. Or I said, let's do um, uh, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth, there's obedience there, comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. But God's actually doing that work. But you come to the truth, you allow him to change you, and you start to do what's right. So you've got judgment and wrath. If you're under judgment, then that means eventually you're going to experience God's wrath. Now that is a very politically incorrect message today. Maybe more so than ever in history. And yet just because it's politically incorrect, just because it is discomforting, just because it is sobering does not mean that it isn't a reality. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we come to the end of chapter 3, 
And to summarize chapter 3, you need a spiritual rebirth to see the kingdom because this world and life is more about just the natural realm that comes from acknowledging your sin and turning and accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is demonstrated in water, in repentance, and baptism. It is actually effective through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And remember, we talked how water, that could be repentance of sin. Certainly, it's encapsulated in baptism, but it's not literally baptism. Otherwise, baptism would be a requirement of salvation, but certainly baptism is, is implicated there. And that we, Jesus Christ, did not come the first time to judge the world, but to save the world. But for those who aren't going to be saved and won't accept God's free gift, they remain under judgment. And so when Christ comes again, he's going to come a second time to judge the world, as we read in Hebrews. I think I somehow Hebrews came up. Anyhow, um, and then we have the testimony of John uh, the Baptist affirming who Jesus is and letting us know what our MO should be and our attitude toward God. He must increase, we must decrease. You've been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash Transforming Lives Together Podcast. Again, that's facebook.com slash Transforming Lives Together Podcast and give us a like. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God bless. God bless.